0: Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice. We ask, oh God, that you would enable us by your grace not to hear this as a word for someone else, but as a word that you wanna speak to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. amen. So I wonder if you've ever had the experience of running into somebody, maybe they're wearing a hat or a pair of boots, or they've accessorized in a particular way, and you see it and you're like, oh, that looks so good, that looks so cute on you. And then you think, I could never pull that off. And then of course, there are those uh, things where you're like, I can pull this off, but my sister can't wear this same thing and get away with it, you know? And and there are some things that look good on you that don't look good on other people. There are things that look good on other people that don't look good on you. And then of course, there are those things that don't look good on anyone, right? And um, I I saw this, the Yeezy Crocs. I think they they might fall into that category. If you're wearing a pair of Yeezy Crocs today, um, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be insulting. And actually, maybe you look really good in Yeezys. You know, I mean, maybe that's your thing, and if that's cool, if that's you, then that's good. But I think we'd all agree that here is something that doesn't look good on anyone, self-righteousness. I mean, if you know someone who wears this and you can just feel it when they walk into the room, when they open up their mouth, when they start pontificating about something or someone, and you can just feel it. You can feel the judgment, you know, and um, and it just doesn't look good on anyone. This is an outfit that I don't think anybody wants to wear. And and yet, you know, I I think, like, the reality is, and I I think I can speak as a little bit of an authority on this one, because I have personal experience with self-righteousness. I know what it's like uh, to feel right in myself and look down on other people. I especially feel right when I see other people who are being self-righteous and look down with condemnation on other people. I get really self-righteous and condemning of them. Anybody else in the house? But... Listen, I think think we can say that those who are self-righteous are rarely self-aware. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, this is one of those things where you can oftentimes be blind to, and you don't see it in yourself. Now, of course, um, being self-righteous can have religious overtones. You know, like Maude Flanders, remember on The Simpsons years ago, who went off to a a Christian retreat because she was going to learn how to become more self-righteous and uh, more judgmental. And of course, there are religious expressions of this, but it doesn't have to be a religious thing. I mean, you can be self righteous and judgmental and be a vegan, you know, (laughs) or you can be a self righteous, judgmental parent or driver, most of us are. And um, but, but you can be feeling right about yourself. And Everyone else is you look down on them with disdain when it comes to political ideology, uh, when it comes to how you spend your money or how they spend their money or how you how you how you think, you know, you're critical and you evaluate things, but not them. They're so superficial and lightweight and and you can be self-righteous and judgmental in all kinds of arenas. And so um, now it happens in a lot of different places. But, you know, it, it, I think oftentimes we can just find ourselves feeling, I wonder if you've ever found, maybe you turn on the news, you listen to talk radio, and you can find yourself feeling like, how can anybody be so misguided or bigoted or evil as those people out there? And I wonder if just anyone's ever, if I nick the corner of how anybody has ever, ever felt in, in you know, um, listen, listen. There is something more right than ju- not just about my views, but about me. This is kind of like what self-righteousness is, is when you think that there is something more righteous and right, not just about your views, but about you. In other words, you're like, you know, like my views are right and I am right. And your views are wrong and you're wrong. I don't like you. You're wrong. You're bad. You're evil. And we can find this surfacing in our hearts all the time. But listen, I think what Jesus is going to tell us in the story that we're looking at today is you might be right. And just for sake of argument, you might be right about your lifestyle choice, about your political ideology. You can be right and yet not righteous. You know, that word righteous Uh, it's an interesting word. It's used throughout a, a lot in the Bible. It's used in the Old Testament. And the word in the Old Testament actually means to be covenantally faithful. In other words, to fulfill the obligations that God has put on you to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God. And you can be right, and yet fail to be covenantally faithful in your obligation to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus, again, he talks about this issue of self-righteousness in the story that we're gonna look at today. In fact, he is so blatant, he's so on your face with this one, you know. um, Sometimes, you know, when you're reading the parables of Jesus, you're like, oh, that's an interesting one. I wonder who's that for? You know, or I wonder who Jesus has in mind when he tells that story. Well, we don't have to wonder when it comes to this text because look at what it says. It says, he told this parable to who? to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so if you have ever found yourself feeling right about yourself and upset and angry about those stupid people over there, this story is for you. And listen to what Jesus says. He tells the story and it goes like this. There were two men that went up into the temple to pray. It's a pretty simple story, really. It's about two guys who go to the temple to pray. Now, in many ways, these two guys have a lot in common. They're both men. They are both fellow human beings. Uh, They are both going to the temple and they both go to the temple for the same purpose. They're going to the temple to pray. And so there is some things that bind them together, but in this, they are different. It says one of them was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Now, Jesus' audience in the first century would have known how diametrically opposed these two words, Pharisee and tax collector, were. Now, I know in our day, you know, I think especially after 2,000 years of church history, when we hear that word Pharisee, uh, most of us don't conjure up warm thoughts, right? It almost is a pejorative term. Oh, that's a Pharisee. You know, you almost hear like the soundtrack to Darth Vader come on, you know, when you hear the word Pharisee it's like bum 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 ba oh, oh. and then the Pharisee shows up, you know. And then of course the tax collector, we think, Oh, it's a tax collector. You know, one of the authors of scripture, Matthew was a tax collector. Jesus came and he ate with tax collectors. Zacchaeus in the tree, tax collector, came and ate with Jesus, you know. And and we can think kind of warm about a tax collector and cold towards a Pharisee. In the first century, it was just the opposite. Nobody in Jesus's audience, when they heard this word Pharisee, thought evil, wicked, Darth Vader. When they heard Pharisee, you know what came to mind? the most respected, the most religiously committed and devout Bible believing people they knew. And when they heard tax gather, you know what they thought? Extortioner, extortioner, cheat, you know, Bernie Madoff. This is uh, somebody who was in bed with the Roman government to betray their own people, to extract taxes from their fellow Jews, to fund the Roman government so that they could keep oppressing them with their military power. And then they would, by the way, add a little bit extra on so that in addition to funding the Roman military, they could enrich themselves. And a lot of tax gatherers were quite rich, self-indulgent, not devout. Not, in fact, uh, the witness of a tax gatherer was not accepted in the court of Jewish law. They were just not trusted. And so Jesus, you see what he's doing. He's telling a story about two people who could not be more different, about two people who are on the exact opposite ends of the spectrum. There is the Pharisee and there is the tax gatherer and in such a Jesus-y fashion. I mean, this is so, like, I just, I love Jesus. Like he just does, he tells these stories. He's like, let me, like let, let's me, let talk about the tax gatherer and the Pharisee that go down to pray. They go down there and then they go back and the, the tax gatherer goes home justified, but not the Pharisee. And you're like, whoa, that's a crazy, in the first century, that would have blown everyone's mind. And so he tells a story about two people, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he wants us to notice how they pray. Look at what it says. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. I mean, it begins well enough, right? He begins with thanksgiving. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust or adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's like, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. God, in case you need to furnish me to furnish you with some examples, for example, extortioners, adulterers, the unjust or tax collectors. And he says, instead, he says, I fast twice a week. Now, within kind of like Judaism, uh, it, it was it was expected that if you were a devout Jew, you would fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. But this guy is a Pharisee. He is extra. And so he doesn't fast once a year. He fasts twice a week. And then he gives a tithe on everything that he owns. This guy is going to the temple. He's a regular church attender. He's giving, he's devout, he's committed. I mean, this is the guy who you want on your elder board. Um, This is the guy who, who you want coming to the church you know, because they're going to tithe regularly. I mean, they're devout. Like, get them in here, you know. Give me more Pharisees, Lord, you know. And um, so, so he prays. And then he says, there's the tax collector. And the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. It was common among the ancient Jews that they would often stand and they would lift up their eyes to heaven and lift up their hands. This man cannot lift his eyes. He's so ashamed of himself. And he beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles themselves will be exalted. Now, I want to at this point, stand back and I just want to ask this question. What did the Pharisee get wrong? And what did the tax collector get right? And I want to invite you, as we kind of explore these two questions, uh, you are going to be tempted right now to listen to this sermon on behalf of someone else. Because all of us know somebody who is more self-righteous and more disdainful and contemptuous towards other people than you. But listen, I think if, if we're honest, uh, this little Pharisee probably resides in the hearts of us all. So let's ask this question, what did the Pharisee get, what do Pharisees get wrong? And I want to suggest what this Pharisee got wrong was simply this, he built his identity on the ways he was not like them. You could say the key phrase in this text, the key problem of the Pharisee could be summed up in this world, I am not like them. I am not like them, and he built his identity on the ways he was not like them. And you know, when, when, you, when you're feeling like, I am not like her or him, what makes it even feel better is when you get together with other people who are also not like her or him and you guys kind of collectively start talking together about her or him, and then all of a sudden, it's no longer me and and her, now it's us and them, right? Now let's all get to, let's have a love fest together. You know, we're friends and we, 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 we all hate the same people. So let's talk about them, you know? And we all are disdainful toward all of the same trends and culture and all of those awful people. So let's talk about them. Let's, let's get, the, let's talk about the progressives. Let's talk about the fundies. Let's talk about the Trump voters. Let's talk about the LGBTQ community. Let's talk about, let's get together and talk about them. Now listen, don't misunderstand me. There is a place for not being like them. You know, there's a place in the Gospels where in the Sermon on the Mount actually, where Jesus is talking about prayer and he talks about the way in which religious people and also irreligious people engage in prayer. And Jesus says very specifically, you shall not be like them. There are toxic, self-destructive ways of being in this world, of being in relationship with your siblings, or your roommate, or your spouse, or whatever, that you should not be like. There are ways in which other people behave that you should not be like. You should not be like them. And you know who else you should oftentimes not be like? Is you. Oftentimes, there are things about you you should not be like. Can I get a witness? So he, he said, look, don't, he, he's not saying like, there's not a place for not being like. The problem is not that they were simply not like them. All things being equal, you'd rather have somebody who's not an extortioner or an adulterer or who's ripping people off. What was the problem? The problem was that he was building his identity on this phrase, I am not like them. This makes me feel okay. Think about a foundation, he's standing on it, and what is the foundation of his life? What makes him feel better about everyone else is, I am not like them. I don't waste money like them. I don't live like them. I don't vote like them. I don't dress like them. I don't talk like them. I am not, I thank God I am not like them. And you feel very, very good about you. But here's the problem, here's the real problem. Listen, when we focus on how we are not like them, you know what happens? We fail to see the fundamental ways in which we are like them. And how are you like them? Well, to start, you're a human and they're a human too. And as a human, you have been created in the image of God and so have they. They have inherent worth and dignity simply because they have been created in the divine image. They are not homeless people. They are not the homeless. They're not the poor, they are humans created in the image of God who are unhoused or who are experiencing poverty or who are experiencing any number of things. They are human beings and you are a human being. Here's another way in which they are like you. You're a mess and you are broken and they are a mess and they are broken. Listen, you have issues, don't you? I mean, like, you've got issues. Just turn to your neighbor and look at them and just say, you've got issues. You've got issues. That felt good, right? Listen. You have hopes and dreams like them. You have insecurities and fears like them. You have deep wounds that have been inflicted upon you like them. You have a story like them. You are like them in your brokenness, in your sin. And you're like them in one more way. Like them, you are an object of divine love. They are objects of divine love for God so loved the world. God is so indiscriminate in his love. He loves everyone. He is infinite in his love, and he has opened up his heart of infinite love, and his love was poured out. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, Greater love has no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. Christ says, I have laid down my life for you. You know, for a, a good man, some people might die. For a righteous man, some might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God loves humans. And when all you are focused on is how you are not like them, how you are better than them, and how could they, and what's wrong with them, and how can anybody be so misguided, and stupid, and insane, and and evil, and ignorant, then you fail to see the ways in which you are just like them. How could they be that way? You should know. I should know. You know, and, and, and... you can blind yourself from seeing how you're just like them in this way too, and this is my thing, is I can think, well, you know, like, I, I can't stand those people who are so judgmental and self-righteous and critical of people, and what am I doing? I am being guilty of the very same thing I'm condemning someone else for. And so when you are building your own identity on how you are not like them, it is blinding you from the very fundamental ways in which we are like them. But secondly, when we focus on how we are not like them, we not only fail to see how we are like them, you can fail to see God. Why did the man go to the temple in the first place? Presumably it was to pray. He went there to, I I think, at least theoretically, meet God. But he gets there and he opens his mouth and he prays and you know what he does? He gives a nod to God and he quickly moves on from God to what he is really interested in, which is himself. You know, he opens his mouth, he says, God, I thank you he speaks the word "God once. He says that word "I" not once or twice, but five times." In fact, um, there are some translations of this passage where it says "He prayed by himself." Uh, some translate that as, "He prayed to himself." Now, I don't know whether or not that's the right translation of the Greek phrase, but I think it gets at what's happening in this story. This man is engaged in a prayer of self-congratulations. Or we could put it like this. For the Pharisee, God is not the ultimate end. God is only a means to the end that was really important to him. The important thing was that he felt better than everyone else. And so God became a very good means to that end. And you know what? Church, religiosity, actually, doing a deep dive in politics, becoming knowledgeable about theology, living right and believing right. These can be all things that you hold on to, not because they enable you to better love God and love your neighbor. You hold on to them because they make you feel better than your neighbor. You know, I think a lot of people, they go to church, uh, they listen to podcasts and sermons for the same reason why they oftentimes tune in to AM talk radio, or they read the editorial page in the New York times. And why do people do that? Well, oftentimes it's not to become educated. It's not to receive new information. It's to be reminded once again that you're right and everyone else out there is wrong and thank God that you are right. We turn to religion because it bolts our certitudes, it makes us feel like we, we, we're safe, we have the truth, and, and we, so we hold on to it, but we pass by the true and living God who is not so easy to contain in your boxes. And so because he was so focused on how he was not like them, he couldn't see God And then finally, let's just press this further. He didn't only fail to see God. When we focus on how we are not like them, we fail to see how we are not like God. How is the Pharisee not like God in our story? The Pharisee, the text says, looked down on others with contempt. You know, the the psychologist and marriage therapist, John Gottman, he's written a number of books on marriage. And he's done a ton, like a truckload of some of the most innovative research, uh, looking at thousands literally of married couples. And he claims that he can sit down with a couple and very quickly diagnose whether or not the marriage is gonna end in divorce. And he says, the one characteristic that is the defining characteristic for him as to whether or not a marriage will end a divorce, he says, is summed up in one word, and that's the word contempt. Gottman says that contempt contempt is like sulfuric acid on love. In other words, you can't love somebody with whom you are holding so much disdain and contempt in your heart towards. In other words, you cannot become like God and keep nursing and talking about and listening to things that keep instantiating your contempt towards your neighbor. And what this man is failing to see with all of his confidence in himself, he clearly, he's a good guy, you know? I mean, he's not cheating on his spouse. He's not cheating his neighbor out of goods. He's even giving money away. He is fasting, he is, it's not, it's, it's not, this isn't like a, a he's not, talking the talk but not walking the walk. No, he's fasting twice a week. He's very, very committed but he is not a person of love. And listen, if you are very, very committed but you are not a person of love, you are not becoming more and more like God because God is love. So the one who becomes more and more like God will begin to embody God's generosity, and his hospitality, and his ability to speak truth and grace and enter into people's lives. This is what you embody as you become more and more like God. So this guy goes to church, he goes to temple to meet God to pray, but he misses God. And all he can see is the ways he is not like them And listen, I I think that there's a lot that goes on in evangelical churches where preachers get on soapboxes. And I'm sure I've done this in my life and we go after them. And the listener is like, yeah, go after them. They're evil and wicked. And you just are like, what about you? What about your heart? What about your way of being in your world? The Trump voters are objects of God's love, treat them that way. The LGBT community are objects of God's love, treat them that way. The progressives are objects of God's love, treat them that way. Your spouse is an object of God's love, treat her or him that way. Your children are objects of God's love, treat them that way. Your parents are objects, your roommate, your sister, your brother. These are objects of God's love, treat them that way. Repent, turn away from those ways in which you are constantly fixated on how you are not like them. Friends, that is destroying houses, it's destroying marriages, it's destroying our nation. We need to be different and we need to grow into this way of being that Jesus speaks about. Jesus is telling this parable that is revolutionary in his day. Nobody would have felt comfortable with this one in the first century because he is saying, what you thought was what God wanted, this kind of religious, good, be committed. Please give fast because it is good for your own formation read your bible and pray but please for god's sake don't do that so that you can feel better than other people so that you can win an argument it's destructive and it's toxic and it is not what jesus is trying to cultivate in our own hearts and lives what does he want to cultivate in us well let's turn now from the pharisee and let's look for a minute at the tax gatherer. So we talked about what the Pharisee got wrong. Let's talk for a minute about what the tax gatherer got right. It's pretty simple, I mean, it's right there in the text. What did the tax gatherer got right? Well, he cast himself on the mercy of God. We could just push this further, more than that. When he went to the temple, he had an encounter with the presence of the one who is holy. And in encountering God, the tax collector was undone and encountered himself. And then he cast himself on the mercy of God. Now, I I don't imagine that the tax gatherer was always in this place. I mean, I think he probably lived for years of his life not in that place. Actually, he probably was comfortably enriching himself at the expense of his neighbors. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like it was working. You know, he's got the Roman soldiers to back him up when he goes to get the taxes. It's just like, this thing is working. I'm getting richer. I'm getting better. And, and you know what? I, I think probably what happened to him is what happens to a lot of us. The longer you are in toxic environments and destructive patterns of being in this world, the less you notice how toxic and destructive and self-sabotaging it is. I remember years ago, um, uh, for, for my, my, my first job in ministry, I was the assistant to the youth pastor, which is very similar to being the assistant to the regional manager. And uh, I remember we used to take a trip every year down to Mexico, and we would work at a deaf orphanage, and when we were there, you know, they would divvy out all these jobs among the high school students. And we would we would work, you know, and so somebody would get, you know, cleaning up the, the backyard, others would um, be painting a room, others would be fixing some equipment, in the playground, and they would divvy out these jobs. And one year, we went down there, they were divvying out the jobs. And they said, there's one job, that's gonna be kind of difficult. And the job uh, that that we need somebody to do is we need to clean out the septic tank. And, um, and they said, who would like to volunteer? Nobody, nobody was volunteering. And so I rose my hand because I was an assistant to the youth pastor. This is what you gotta do. I took one for the team. And then we had a foreign exchange student who was actually living with us who couldn't speak English very well. he didn't know what was being asked of us. So when he, he saw me, raise, he raised his hand, so he got. And then the youth pastor, he was like, he had to do it, you know? And um, I remember going over to this outhouse and there was no tank there was just a hole underneath an outhouse. And they give us a shovel, latex gloves, and a wheelbarrow. (laughs) And I remember walking up to this thing and the smell just hits you. You almost wanted to like faint. And I remember like starting to like shovel this stuff. And it was such a strong scent that I thought, I'm gonna pass out, I'm gonna fall in, I'm gonna die there. (laughs) But you know, after shoveling this stuff for three, four hours, the weirdest thing happened I started to get used to the smell and by noon, you know, the chow bell rang. And so it was time for us all to go and to get lunch. And we, you can imagine how hungry we were. And so we, we went, <laughs> I think they served us like chili or something. <laughs> anyway, I remember walking though from the outhouse down to the chow hall and all the other students were there. And as we were approaching them, uh, we saw all of these disgusted looks on their face and we're like, what is it? What is it? What's wrong? They're like, it's you. It's you. You guys smell, you know. But, you know, we had been in it so long that we had stopped noticing. And this is a parable. You can be in, you've been talking that way to people who work under you for so long, you don't even notice what it sounds like. You've been talking that way to your kids, to your spouse for so nobody even notices. You, you, you speak, you have that kind of attitude toward a brother or a like you don't even notice it. And yet it's toxic. It is self-destructive and it is self-sabotaging. It will kill you. It will kill your relationships and people around you. And I can imagine this tax gatherer at some point he starts to reckon with the stench. And maybe it began as like a nine sense that there has to be something more. Maybe it was somebody whose family, he he saw the kids actually crying because of the money, the last bit of, maybe there was something that, he just thought, I need to go back to church. And some of you are there. I know some of you, you've been out of church for a long time and something's been stirring in you for a long time and you wandered back to church. Something was going on and, and you came there and this man walks into the temple and he encounters the presence of God. You know, he probably first encountered the Pharisee, probably felt terrible about himself. Like that guy knows what's what. He is extra, he is like you know, fasting twice a week. And I just, I just feel like, I. And, and he falls down and he is undone, but he doesn't just meet the tax gatherer, he meets, or he doesn't just meet the Pharisee, he meets the true and living God. But this God does not meet his brokenness with judgment. He meets his brokenness with mercy. And the one who is humbled is exalted. The one who recognizes that he is not worthy is made worthy. The one who realizes he is not righteous is declared righteous. And Jesus says that guy went home justified rather than the other guy. You know, there's one more little interesting thing, and I'll just close with this, you know. Commentators speculate that this guy was going down to the temple during the hours of prayer. The hours of prayer for the ancient Jews were at nine and three which were times when the morning and the evening sacrifices were made. And so commentators have speculated that that when he goes down and he cries out for mercy, what he's asking for is that the sacrifice that is being made in the temple will avail on his behalf. And I think Jesus is telling this story intentionally just before he is gonna go into Jerusalem, just before he is gonna go into the temple, just before he is gonna upset the religious establishment and a group of people who likely fast twice a week and who give a 10th of all they own and who pray all the time at the temple will collaborate together and put the very embodiment of God to death. They will murder the life of God among them. And in that moment, Christ will become the very embodiment of the infinite mercy of God that is for everyone. He will become the final sacrifice. He will become the great priest who intercedes on behalf of his people. And let me just put it like this, if you are in a place right now where you have never surrendered your life to God, maybe you're kind of new to Christianity, like you're, you're, you're wandering back into church after being away for a while. Listen, this is not about learning the religious game. Christianity at its heart is about entering into a relationship with the true and living God and a relationship that is based only on mercy and grace is freely open to all who will come. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. Come to me, he says, and be restored, be forgiven, be be a recipient of mercy. This is where the Christian life begins. And friends, acknowledging your need, reckoning with the presence of God who exposes your own ways in which you fail to love your neighbor and God, that's not just where the Christian life begins. That's how it continues, and that's how you and I grow into people of mercy and grace, is we constantly cultivate disciplines of self-awareness and repentance and personal trust back in the mercy and grace of God in Jesus.